Alrighty, we are back. Your favorite podcast show of the week. This is Location Weekly. It's episode number 499. We are just one away from the big 500. And uh, we have a lot of special stuff coming next week to celebrate that. But in the meantime, we've got a regular show for you. Abriana, how's things going? You know, things are going okay, I would say. Uh, Personally, they're going well. Professionally, they're going well as an American. It's a little questionable right now, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I am counting my blessings and, uh, my, my health and just being grateful again today. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah. You know, we're, um, you know, we're watching, uh, with, uh, great, uh, interest into what's happening in your, uh, your politics leading up to the inauguration and obviously, uh, very saddened by, uh, what happened, uh, with the, uh, riots, insurrection, whatever we're going to call it, um, last week. And uh, obviously, we're, uh, we pray for the families, uh, you know, who've lost people and those have injured and so on. So, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, disheartening. But, uh, and, and the pandemic continues. We're, um, you know, here with, uh, in, in Ontario, things seem to be getting a bit worse, actually, in terms of cases and whatnot. Um, and so it looks like we might be going into even uh, a little more strict lockdown in the next uh, couple of weeks. We'll see. Um, but uh, otherwise, healthy, happy, um, you know, hockey is starting uh, again. The NHL is starting up this week. So that's kind of good um, to get lift people's spirits. And obviously the NFL is in full, uh, full swing and my team won. So, you know, there's that. Uh, and uh, my Raptors are not doing well, so that's very, uh, very discouraging, um, you know. And uh, but, you know, at least we've got something to watch. There's some entertainment out there. So, anything else going on for you? No, there's really not. You know, it's like just trying to get the year started, and um, you know, in some ways, you have to like keep blinders on from all of this crazy reality that's around us uh and other ways you know just trying to see what you can do as your part as a human as you know a citizen and you know for me it's really like my family right this is what i got to i can influence right now so that's about it (laughs) all right well uh why don't we jump into the show as per usual we have four stories we want to cover this week uh, a wide array of things, and uh, I'll let Aubriana kick it off. Yeah, so, you know, we're starting with a story about more contactless payments once again. Uh, and this, you know, makes a lot of sense. I'm surprised it's taken this long to start to roll this out. But uh, New York City's Metro Transit Authority, or the MTA for the subway, will be completely phasing out their Metro cards by 2023. So you got a little bit of time, uh, but you know, it's their Omni payment system and it's going to accept contactless payments. So that's going to happen either via smartphones, smartwatches, or from the Omni card, uh, which will start to roll out this year. And they have completed installations as of the end of 2020 of this contactless fare readers. Um, you know, I think this is good because obviously it's less to carry, less to find. I don't often ride the MARTA here in Atlanta, Um, you know, prior to COVID and pandemic. And when I was traveling a lot, I did to and from the airport. 
Um, and it is kind of a pain because you've got to like have that card to get in and out and find it. And, you know, you're juggling a lot of things if you're, you know, carrying luggage and, and things of that nature. So I like the idea of just like, you know, scanning your watch or just being able to get in and out really easy. Um, you know, I would expect like Marta to be probably one of the last, uh, you know, adopters of, of something like this, but it's not really, it, it, it's not super, uh, you know, futuristic here. We're just talking about being able to integrate something that just allows, um, you know, people to have sort of their choice of, of uh, passes. And so the cards will still be ava available. They'll be selling them, you know, across uh, retail locations and, uh, I'm sure right around the, the subways as well. Um, but, you know, I would say the only reason that somebody may not want to use some type of a contactless smartphone payment, maybe one, you know, they're just visiting, they're a tourist and they don't want to download another app on their device or two, you know, privacy concerns. They don't want to have to identify themselves or where they're going to and from, from mobile device perspective. But I would say, you know, this is great. Like this is not something that's just great during a pandemic. This is great all the time because it's just more seamless and, and easy uh, to use. And, you know, everybody that's riding the subway typically, especially in New York City is always in a hurry. Uh, they're always on the go and a lot are commuters, you know, going to and from work. And so anything that can speed up that process, I'm sure is welcomed by all. Um, but yeah, what do you think? I think it's, um, I mean, it, I'm with you. Like, I, th I think it's, uh, it's about time. Like this technology has been around for a long time now, you know, as I was two, two, two thoughts, right? So first uh, off, they must've heard you were relocating and, you know, wanted to kind of make sure that things were ready for you. So, so there's that. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, the, the technology has been here forever, right? Like, I mean, I remember, Gosh, about maybe even eight years ago, early days of the LBMA, uh, you know, I was out at our our, uh, our Singapore chapter, and the Singapore government was, you know, even way back then, was very proactive in deploying location and proximity technologies, um, and be, and they're they're very they're the kind of government that's very much. Um, you know, pushes technology, pushes innovation into the everyday lives of citizens. And they had deployed this in, in the uh, in the transit system, um, you know, way back then. And this is like eight years ago, um, right? So they were, you know, kind of one of the first I'd seen at scale. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the MTA in, uh, in New York, I mean, it's obviously the, probably the biggest transit system in the country. And, um, you know, it makes sense that they have, you know, these kinds of technologies and they're supporting those types of movements. Um, you know, I always, for me, I think facilitating that easy transaction, that easy tap and, and sort of, you know, enter uh, is one thing. I always, you know, sort of fall back to what's the data play? Is there a data play associated with this? What other information are they kind of gleaning from this? Um, so I'd be interested to know a little bit more about that. But on the surface, I think it's a no brainer. I think it makes sense. I think you know, uh, this is the society we're in now, and especially driven off of COVID, uh, you know, having contactless anything is good. So that's my- Yeah, opinion. I'm sure that if there's, if there's an app involved, then there's likely advertising play involved and other areas that they're able to monetize. So that completely opens up a wide array of options for them. And I think that's super interesting as well. Um, but yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so now uh, shifting gears from New York all the way across the pond to our uh, chapter over in Japan, uh, two companies have partnered up to deliver location services there, Metcom and NextNav. Uh, and we've talked about NextNav, you know, fairly recently, I think in the last quarter or so. Uh, but basically the two companies have uh, formed a new licensing deal uh, to deliver what they're calling resilient, precise, and secure solutions for 3D position navigation and timing, PNT, in the Japanese market. Uh, so they're using NextNav's uh, TerraPoint solution to do this um, and uh, using low power wide area network uh, solutions from Kyocera, another Japanese company uh, who's part of this. So there's a, a few different players, including Sony Network uh, Communications and others who are part of this sort of initiative. But the goal here is to really provide an alternative to satellite based positioning and, and um, you know, to have a, a more accurate positioning, a more a uh, finite way to know where people are and, and to deliver that kind of just precision location awareness, uh, whether that be for vehicles or people or in, in buildings, um, uh, to do that at scale and to do that with accuracy um, and to leverage the, the kind of technologies that they're talking about here. Uh, and in particular, um, you know, one of the challenges, especially in a market like Japan, where you have you know very very sort of densely packed real estate, you know with lots of floors uh, because you just don't have the the space uh, like we do here in North America to spread out. You know you're dealing with you know multi-level buildings, right? And so knowing what floor somebody's on with accuracy and how that plays into public uh, uh, safety and uh, E911 services and all those kinds of things becomes extremely relevant. And I think that's where you can see a big play for this type of partnership between uh, uh, NextNav and, uh, and Metcom. So I'm, I, you know, I, I, I don't have to say anything more than that other than I think it's a, it's a solid offering uh, with a lot of key players in the industry and seems to be very well positioned. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, it is very, um, very much needed from a technology perspective. The precision is necessary. I think most of us who have ever traveled for business or taken um, an Uber or a Lyft and you order that and you're in a more urban and dense area, it's hard, you know, you might be located around the block or trying to figure out which, you know, which insurance you need to come out of to find this Uber driver. It's really um, frustrating at times. And so this, you know, just putting it in layman's terms, like this solves that problem um, at scale, as well as navigating to multiple floors of retail, right? So I think that this is it's necessary. It's just kind of the next evolution and next phase of where we're going with, um, you know, technology for positioning. Yeah, and and before I, I forget, uh, I just wanted to point out for those of, of our members over in the region, or just those who want to follow online, because everything's online these days. Our next uh, conference in the Japanese market will be March 18th and 19th, uh, completely online. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, hopefully companies like Metcom and NextNav will be uh, will be a part of that discussion. Uh, but uh, I think a good good initiative uh, to to be following uh, in in that market specifically. All right. Awesome. Well, this next story is really interesting. You know, we had talked about um, the Internet of Places a few shows ago and sort of how uh, some testing was happening. And Google's Internet of Places is, in fact, moving forward now. And if you want to think of this as, uh, you know, 
like what is what is Internet of Places? You want to think of this as like what you see. So think of uh, you know Google Lens, Live View, 3D navigation. You can search what you see. Um, so I like that sort of uh, search what you see if you need a, a an easy definition of this. But um, you know they recently unveiled the storefront visual search feature, which uh, I think is is helpful, obviously, and, and interesting. And then um, there's also the um, you know now they've announced this new crowdsourcing effort for assembling 3D maps, right? So this could help scale this up, the underlying data that needs to get closer to an IOP or Internet of Places reality. Um, you know, there's a lot of different announcements that they're making that are really all about crowdsourcing and bringing this data in. Uh, so think about connected photos. So this is a feature that's in the Android Street Map app. Uh, it lets users contribute imagery to the Google Maps database. So imagine like walking down the street and you can just have a, uh, you know, you hold up your smartphone and the app is capturing all of these different frames, right, as you walk around. Um, and so this means basically for the first time now, we're not going to just be seeing like those Google street cars capturing this 360 degree camera that's not needed anymore. Now we can actually look at, okay, these are all consumers, right? This is all like a, a ways with imagery, if you will. So the quality and the visual accuracy uh, or acuity, I would say, of these images is probably not going to be like we've seen on Street View previously, but the scale is certainly going to be much, much better. So uh, what I found interesting is Google's stated purpose is to let users improve Street View and get the last mile imagery where cars cannot uh, travel. Um, you know, they also mentioned things like how this could help assemble 3D image data for the AR cloud and their other IOP ambitions. It's also aligned with some, some AR approaches like, you know, we've seen Niantic with uh, Pokemon that's capturing these real world spatial images so that players can, you know, play their spatial mapping needs to ha happen at scale in order for this to be uh, effective and it requires some help from consumers. I think this is all very interesting stuff. I think there's a lot of good use cases for it. Uh, I think there, you know, are a lot of uh, enhancements that can happen from this. You know, I think back to several years ago, for example, when uh, when I used to attend Mobile World Congress in Barcelona every year, and there was this great restaurant where we would host the LBMA and the Digital Element uh, cocktail parties. And it was great. It was like this amazing sort of underground cavern. It was very old. It was founded by like a Duke that was there and just a really, really cool place. Um, but it was hard to find and the cars could not drive there. So if you didn't have, you know, a, an easy way to find it or sort of navigate there, sometimes it was complicated and, um, you know, kind of made it a little bit more fun that it was a little bit secret but at the same time you want your uh, uh you know your invitees to be able to find where you're going and so i can see real life applications for things like this um i also think though what's interesting is that in essence consumers are doing the work for google and for niantic and my question to them is how are they rewarding them right they're getting value out of this uh what is the reward that they're they're giving to them i know that you know, several years ago, probably 10 years ago or so, I had a friend that had um, sort of contracted with Google Maps. So they were doing the Google inside the stores at one point where you could kind of see like what the inside of the stores looked like. 
And so, you know, he was a, a photographer and videographer. And so it was just something that he sort of picked up on a contract where he would just videotape the inside of stores, really, you know, do like a 360 view. And, you know, Google paid him to do that um, as part of their mapping features. So it sounds like there's some level of value that this is obviously driving uh, where Google will have ownership um, and access to this data and this imagery. So I'm just curious, hey guys, like feel free to reach out and let us know uh, what's the value that you're providing back to consumers. I would love, love to know. Um, but yeah, that's all I got on this story so far. Yeah, and, and I, think <laughs> a, I think that's a, a really pertinent question. I, I think that, you know, we talk a lot about these, these companies that are building these services and these platforms but what is that value exchange? What is it for you know the consumer, the user that's that's going out essentially now and doing this work uh, for Google? And I, I think it's interesting too that um, you know you bring up the uh, the Niantic uh, role in this. So Niantic, the, the makers of Pokemon Go, so they've got these people going out and capturing real world spatial maps through Pokemon Go with all their AR layers and whatnot as well, and feeding into this. And I think that, like. You know, do people know, like, if I'm a Pokemon Go user, do I know, and, and has it been disclosed to me, that relationship with Google? I mean, do, does the general public know that Google basically owns, like, Niantic and, you know, put a $20 million investment into that company and, you know, so on? Like, I, I don't think so, right? And so if I'm collecting this stuff and that data is being shared in, uh, you know, maybe I'm fine to do it, you know, as a Pokemon Go user, if I think it's going to, you know, help Pokemon Go and Niantic, but maybe I don't really know that that's actually part of the Google behemoth uh, out there or not. Like, so I think there's, you know, a need for this, this kind of disclosure uh, around, you know, what's being collected, how is it being collected, how do I benefit, like all those questions, right, you know, continue to be raised. Um, and, I, and I think- You mean you didn't read the 47 page privacy disclosure? No. Every single app you use and engage with. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, but but the notion, like coming back to the kind of the core of the story, the notion of this sort of internet of places, I, I agree with, you know, we that's where we started the LBMA, right? Like we've always defined the LBMA as this intersection of people, places, and media, right? From day one. And it was always about, you know, everything basically having a location and, and being able to understand the relationship between people those things, the media, uh, all, and, and, the, and how location unites those things together. And so I think this, you know, idea of an internet of places, everything being tagged, everything having, you know, some sort of metadata associated with it makes sense. Um, but again, like to, to the point that you raise is how do I, as a consumer that's being asked to do this work, uh, you know, actually benefit from it? So I, I think there's still some questions there that need to get answered. And I think the other thing to consider too is all of these companies, you know, we, we heard this week about WhatsApp now, uh, you know, grasping, you know, at collecting data, you know, Musk is out there pushing, you know, his, his views on, on what to do about, you know, messaging platforms. You've got all this stuff going on because of the, you know, uh, deprecation of the IDFA and all these things that are going on. Everybody's trying to find new ways to get data. Right, and this is yet another way to go about it, again on the backs of the everyday consumer, without, you know, some clear definition of of how they participate and benefit from it. So I think there's just questions. I'm not questioning the notion of what they're trying to do. I think there's value, but 
you know, where's the disclosure? Where's the, you know, sort of benefit uh, exchange piece of it? Yep. All right, final story for this week, lightening things up. Uh, let's go to the body shop now. Uh, has teamed up with Uber Eats uh, for delivery. And uh, so we've touched on this a little bit, uh, this concept before, but I think what's interesting here is, is that, um, so they're launching this in five cities across the US, uh, which are New York, Orlando, Austin, Houston, and Dallas. Um, yeah, so as well as Toronto. Uh, so there's the one Canadian city in there as well. 91 products available uh, from uh, the body shop. But essentially what they're doing is they're going like and, and kind of leveraging the power and the network and the, uh, you know, sort of range of Uber Eats to do same day delivery uh, around, you know, products. So basically the Uber Eats people go to the local store, pick up the product and, and bring it to you, uh, you know, for you in the same way that you would do, you know, food through Uber Eats. Um, and I think what's interesting is two things here. So I think Uber Eats obviously is really pushing to widen their, you know, the scope of what they can do and, and who their clients are beyond just the restaurant industry, which I think is good for them in terms of, you know, finding new revenue. And I think in this time that we're in, where everything's going online, everything's going to, you know, delivery and pickup and whatnot, it makes sense that, you know, retailers would want to leverage that. I think, um, you know, the other aspect of it is from from the body shop's point of view, um, you know, what what's I think a bit surprising to me is that, you know, they in some ways they it's a statement to say, hey, we haven't given up on retail. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going completely online. Um, you know, our bricks and mortar stores are still important to us. And, you know, we want to help facilitate that uh, and keep that alive uh, through this type of delivery service. So I think that's kind of interesting uh, as well. Um, and we're seeing this as a trend uh, across, you know, the planet, right? So it's, this isn't something that's just happening here. We're a little further behind, in fact, in North America than some other markets. Uh, they, uh, in the article that, uh, that I was reading around this, they were highlighting that in, uh, in the South Korean market, there's a company called Coupang, uh, which is a, um, uh, a retailer there. And they say that 99% of their packages are delivered within 24 hours. And in China, Alibaba and JD.com and others have been doing this for years. So like this is this is not a, you know, a brand new thing. Uh, it's just something that uh, I think we're starting to see retailers recognize, hey, wait a second, we're in lockdowns, you know, COVID's killing, you know, traffic to the mall, to the store. We got to find ways to get this out. But we, we want to keep that footprint of, of physical stores alive until we can get back to foot traffic. Um, and this is a, a stopgap way to do that. And maybe more yeah. than a stopgap, maybe a way that, you know, will persist to some extent beyond. Yeah, I really think so. Um, you know, there's a, a couple of things that this story made me think of. One, you know, I remember back to like middle school and high school days, I'm dating myself here, but like the body shop and Bath and Body Works were all the rage. So one, it's shocking to me to see that they are still going strong, right? Um, you know, here when I was, you know, doing a little bit of holiday shopping, which most of I did, most of I, most of my shopping I did online, of course, this year. Um, but when I had to run and pick up something. I noticed there was a line like wrapped around, I know this is the body shop, but wrapped around Bath and Body Works. And I was like, wow, I cannot believe the demand for like 
you know, obviously they were limiting the amount of people that could be in the store at the time, but I mean, it was just, there was a line waiting to get in. And I just was so shocked by that. Like, I can't believe that it's still in such high demand after being around for so many years. So I think that it's interesting how they are, um, you know, sort of staying alive, especially during this time where maybe like, you know, proofy uh, lotions and scented candles are not <laughs> a necessity. Uh, the other thing is that I love that, you know, stores like this that have been around for a long time that typically we would probably see kind of phase in and out are maintaining relevancy and the way that they're doing it by being able to deliver on demand. And what I think this does is it gives them the capability to still maybe, especially during this time, right? Like they could, in essence, uh, I, I would say uh, lessen their, their retail footprint from a physical perspective. So who knows how many stores there are in Atlanta, you know, as a whole, but perhaps now they have like, you know, one or two that they really just are sort of their main hubs that they're, you know, focused to be delivering out of, and they can do much more uh, business at a lower cost and lower overhead than they had before, which allows them then, you know, to uh, compensate their employees better and focus more on their products and, you know, and packaging and how it's getting to uh, consumers in a safe manner. So, I love seeing something like this and, and teaming up with Uber Eats that, you know, has traditionally been food, thinking about goods being delivered that, you know, that can be, uh, you know, just picked up and, and same day. Um, it's like walking through the aisle with those last minute things that you don't need that are all like in the dollar bin that you just end up, you know, packing into your basket. Um, so I like it. I, I yeah, it just, just a thought that popped into my head. Um, so, so if you're Uber Eats now, do you think that there's an opportunity to start to uh, partner up non-competitive brands in the same delivery, like package up? So, for example, I order something from the body shop. Uber Eats is going to deliver it. You know, what's what's to say that Uber Eats can't, you know, as they're preparing that order for delivery, they can't say, hey, you know, there's a Taco Bell, uh, you know, right here. Would you like us to bring you some Taco Bell at the same time? you know, or whatever, right? Um, I, I think that's interesting. And, and I wonder if there's an opportunity for, you know, let's say if, if the body shop is the initial order, like the first order that drives that connection, that engagement, that transaction, I wonder if there's a tack on, you know, of some other company's product, if the body shop can actually sort of share in that revenue with Uber Eats. That would be an interesting model. Yeah, especially when you think about, okay, what about like mom and pop stores, one-offs, you know, where mm -hmm. there's this delivery, you know, concept and, and feasibility now for for this. And, and now Uber Eats is not just the delivery for my one, you know, food item that I'm having for this meal. Now Uber Eats is actually like my personal shopper, right? I tell them exactly what I want. They just have to pick it up. I don't necessarily need to trust or know the person because, you know, the financial aspect and what I'm choosing has already been taken care of. It's more just about, um, you know, the contactless thing. And again, if you are eliminating like people in the chain, um, one, you're cutting down on like excessive exposure as well as just where things can break, right? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. You've been listening to uh, episode 499. Um, and uh, as always, uh, some very, uh, some very cool stories in there and a lot of speculation from us about possibilities. But 
Um, you know, we're, uh, we're excited every week to do this show. We thank you for listening and watching. Uh, if you have story ideas, reach out to us. And of course, be sure to tune in uh, next week as we celebrate our 500th episode uh, with lots of special uh, guests and activities uh, happening and, and things. So, yeah, uh, we're very excited about that. Uh, thank you, everybody, and have a great week. Bye. Bye.